Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, do we really have a United States of America? I want to talk about that. My guest today is a contributing writer for The Nation and the author of Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the World. His writing on politics, history, and literature has appeared in Raritan, The Baffler, Slate Salon, and The Boston Globe, raised in New Jersey and educated at McGill University in Montreal. He currently is a Brooklyn resident. I'm going to talk about his latest book just released entitled Break It Up, Secession Division and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Richard Creightner joins us now. Richard, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Kreitner. Means chalker in German. Oh, Say it again? It means chalker. Chalkmaker, I guess, in German. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. All right. Some Learn something new every day. <laughs> How are you, Richard? I'm all right. How are you doing? 
I'm just fine. Glad to hear you and yours are faring as well as can be expected in this in this plague. Um, so um, your book, um, it, we've seen conversations uh, and heard conversations about secession since the Civil War. Uh, I know most recently, um, was it uh, Texas that threatened to secede when o Obama was elected and California threatened to secede um, when Trump was elected? Uh, in, in terms of the modern day today, how widespread are these conversations and how real are they for that matter? Well, I think that's a good question. They're very widespread um, in a sort of casual way, often a joking way. You know, people will say, if, if Trump is reelected, I'm going to leave the country or, or we should break up the union. I'm, I'm not sure that people really mean it just yet, but the fact that that idea is so prevalent and widespread, and, and as, you, as you mentioned with Texas, uh, exists on both sides of the political divide, suggests to me that there's something real going on just underneath the surface of national politics that threatens to you know, upturn the apple cart entirely. Um, and, and strangely, the, what really makes the, the new secessionism, as I call it, in the last 20 years new, is that it's going on in, in almost every part of the country. You know, in previous episodes, you know, re leading right up to the Civil War, it would be on one side of the aisle or another at a, at a certain time in one state or another. But right now, it's not only in Texas and California, but there are people in Hawaii who want to, you know, reclaim the independence of the Hawaiian kingdom. People in Alaska who, who wish that the last frontier never joined in the first place. Mm. Uh, people in Vermont who want to reclaim the independence of the Republic of Vermont as it existed in the 18th century. Um, and, and, and on and on in the Northwest, the Cascadia movement, and, and of course, neo-Confederates in the South. Um, and, and this is new, I think, in, uh, in its breadth and in, in the fact that it's in every part of the country at once. Wow, that is, that is interesting. But I mentioned a civil war. If we're talking about secession uh, and these types of conversations, doesn't it go back even further than that? It does, exactly. That was my main goal, I would say. My main mission with this book was to disabuse people of the notion that I think we're taught in schools and in most history books that secession was limited to the Civil War and only to the South and the Confederacy and slavery, and therefore that it's a concept that holds no you know, emancipatory potential um, in our own time uh, for people, you know, on the left or who believe in progress and, and equality and whatnot. You know, the union has always been divided and there have always been people who, you know, as my first chapter shows on the colonial period, didn't want to form one in the first place. There's a reason why it took a century and a half for Americans to decide to join together. They didn't really want to. And those um, doubts and those hesitancies and that skepticism lasted after a union was formed. And as I show in the book, the first uh, disunion movement in American history, really first popular widespread one was in the North, was in New England. And it was, you know, um, not radically, but moderately anti-slavery, certainly against, you know, compromises in the Constitution, like the Three-Fifths Clause. Um, and and they, they sought to repeal that, that, that part of the Constitution. Um, and that was during the War of 1812. And they, they probably were going to secede, but then the war ended and um, they, they lost all their leverage <laughs> over um, the administration of James Madison. And the Federalist Party, which uh, dominated New England at the time, disappeared. Uh, but yeah, and then and then later on in California and in Oregon in the 1840s and 1850s, there was a very strong uh, sense that the Pacific Republic uh, was was a, a real idea that could have real potential to exist as an independent nation. 
And previously, that idea had been supported by Thomas Jefferson, even and Daniel Webster, people who we associate with national unity. And there are about, you know, many other movements we can talk about. But I think that what this shows is that the idea, the Union has, the United States has never really been united. There have always been people, you know, who doubted that it could continue or doubted that it should. Um, since he's a popular character right now, Alexander Hamilton, where was he in all of these conversations about Union, if anywhere? He's, pr he's present through a lot of the book, and I started the book before the play came out. Um, and I've been, I've been intrigued to see him getting so much so much play. I have a slightly more skeptical, uh, suspicious even view of, of Hamilton and his contributions to American history. You know, and he, but he was, you know, to give him credit, he was really the first visionary of American Union. He was the first one who saw, even before the Revolutionary War ended, that Americans needed to come together and form a more perfect union if they were really going to survive as a people at all. And he was the, the main person, you know, pushing for a new constitution. I, I don't think that constitution served everybody uh, equally, needless to say. It mostly served Hamilton's friends who were speculators uh, you know, on Wall Street and whatnot. Um, but but to me, that was his vision. Later on, he, he really, once Jefferson is elected, his, his political nemesis, he doesn't turn against the Union necessarily, but many of his friends do, and he begins to doubt whether the country um, you know, can survive. In, in 1804, I was one of my favorite sort of you know, discoveries of the book was that just before his duel with Aaron Burr, his first, his almost final letter that he writes is arguing against his friends in New England who favor secession to protest Jefferson and, and Free Fit's cause and whatnot. And he says, we should not break up the union because to do so would make democracy more prevalent and more potent in each of its parts, each of the new countries that formed from the formerly United States. And what that suggests to me is, is maybe he was right. You know, maybe if we do break up the union, perhaps American democracy could have some kind of rebirth or, or restart. Um, where does the Declaration of Independence come in in all this? I believe you've written um, that um, that may somewhat contradict being a union, the Declaration of Independence. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, throughout American history, a lot of people like Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, have looked to the Declaration as the beginning of the Union. It was the birth certificate of the American Union, that the Union was formed at the same time that the states became independent, and therefore they had no right to leave it. But the Declaration, what it really is, is a disunion document. It's, it's a secessionist manifesto of saying why the American colonies were going to leave their Union that already existed with Great Britain. And it says that Anytime a government becomes uh, hostile to the ends for which it was established, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. That's essentially a, a promise that you are allowed to secede. That, that's, it's a revolutionary act for sure, but that's the, the act on which uh, you know, the United States was founded. So it's always been hard for people in power who insist on national unity, like Lincoln, to, to explain away why the American colonists had the right to revolt and to secede from Great Britain, but subsequent American dissidents who wanted to secede do not have that right. So we all heard um, Barack Obama at the convention and his address was very sobering. And he even suggested that the state of our union and democracy really is in jeopardy. And I got a lot of calls, people like, oh my God, what is he saying? What is he talking about because everyone is so comfortable and most people aren't you know probably as nerdy 
is you and me and Barack Obama. <laughs> when it comes to these, they just think everything, we just all kind of going forward. But um, hearing him and now discussing your book, um, I wonder if there should not be a greater cause for sobriety and concern. And if we're talking about secession, how much of that is, is tied to partisanship, Richard? Sure. Well, I think the Obama question first. You know, the, the book really, it feels very timely. It feels very relevant or like some kind of commentary on the Trump moment. But it actually came out of the late Obama years is when I first got the idea and first started working on the book. Um, you know, here, here Obama had burst onto the scene talking about a more perfect union. We're kind of used to that language now. It comes from the Constitution, obviously. But, you know, Bill Clinton wasn't talking about that. Uh, you know, you know, Linda Johnson wasn't talking about that. The last several Democratic presidents used different kinds of language. Obama's really the one who kind of invoked this, this very, I keep talking about him, but this very Lincoln-esque language about national unity that had disappeared for a long time. And I think, you know, was probably our best chance to, to really recover some sense of purpose and unity for this country. It, it didn't work out that way. As, as I discussed in, you know, in the last chapter of the book about the 21st century, we, we don't seem to be able to, to continue with this project of, making, of forming a more perfect union. Um, and I think that, that the Obama years, will look at, will, we will look back on as the last best opportunity and, and, a, and a missed one. Um, I'm sorry, what was, what was the second question? Well, is, when we talk about secession and those who were discussing it today, how much does partisanship play a role? A lot, a lot, absolutely. Um, a lot of people think that the belief in a strong national government or in you know, so-called states' rights um, is some kind of deep philosophical principle. You've read all the founding documents, you added them up, and you decided what you think is the appropriate view. But as I think we see all the time with politicians, presidents, even Supreme Court justices lately, they pick and choose between these two large, you know, large-scale philosophies, depending on on what, what serves them and their parties and, and their sides' um, interests at any given moment. So uh, partisanship often goes so far as to embrace secessionism, but it can also switch back, you know, just the other way. During the Obama years, when he was being, you know, stymied in Congress, we all supported, I did at least, um, his executive orders on immigration, climate change, and, and, and thought that he had the right to, to enact them. But as soon as Trump came into office, everyone on the left just switches and says, no, you, you can't govern by executive fiat. You know, so we, we're always switching based on uh, our partisan interests. And I found this to be true throughout American history. You know, with regards to secession, in the 1790s, Republicans, the opposition party, like led by Jefferson and Madison, uh, favored nullifying federal laws that, that Federalists had passed in the John Adams administration and even went so far as to entertain the idea of secession. As soon as Jefferson won the presidency in 1800 and the Federalists, now out of power, start arguing against union and for separatism, Jefferson and Madison say, no, 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 the union is supreme and perpetual. We have to hold this thing together. So partisanship often plays out through secessionism. And um, I think what's, what's, what's constant and fundamental is not what each side thinks about strong government or states' rights in particular, but the general fragility of the union, that any party that's out of power often is arguing against unity. Richard, are you, you arguing that secession, secession or even conversations around secession are, are actually a good thing 
because of what was in the spirit of the Declaration of Independence? I think so. I, I generally think so. That doesn't necessarily mean that I support every secessionist effort. I don't think that we should have just, you know, let the South go and, and preserve slavery. Um, and I don't support, you know, Texan secession today. But I do think that secession can be an important and even revolutionary and, yes, progressive idea. You know, look at this November. If, if Trump steals the presidential election and is able to hold on to power despite a lack, I mean, he doesn't even have a majority support now from the last election, but despite being, being you know, roundly defeated in what would have otherwise been a free and fair election, I mean, what, what are we going to do? This is what I keep not hearing people say. You know, everyone's railing against what he's doing with the Postal Service and other moves that he's made to, you know, steal the election. But what is the program? What is the goal? What is the, the ultimatum? You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, things are as serious as, as we say they are, and I, I think they are. So... I, I... A, a journalist colleague of mine, in fact, an elder, Sam Smith of the um, Progressive Review, um, has said the Civil War was never really resolved. And in fact, that when you look at where power is concentrated, particularly with regards to the Electoral College, it is those former Confederate states that still hold a great deal of of disproportionate um, power. And when we look at this current reckoning over Confederate statues and whatnot, um, when you look at all of these statues and, and all of this nostalgia about the Confederacy, it doesn't seem like they lost at all. <laughs> yeah. You agree um, that either that war was never resolved or maybe even that it's still being fought? I totally would. I would say it, it hasn't been resolved, or the way in which it was resolved never actually addressed the underlying problems that had led to it and have constantly threatened to start a second one, essentially. You know, the, the Reconstruction, the, the Union, the North, never consolidated its victory. It eventually surrendered in the Compromise of 1877, you know, which, which many people at the time called the Devil's Compromise, which essentially allowed the country to reunite. Great but on the basis of white supremacy and states' rights. Um, and we've never actually you know, gone back and, and torn up that compromise and restarted Reconstruction. I, I write in the book that we must finish the work of Reconstruction or give up on the Union entirely. I, you know, I hope people don't misunderstand me. My preference is for the former. I hope we can you know, form a truly united country, a multiracial democracy. Um, but if, if it seems like that ship has sailed, like that's not going to be possible either with the constitution that we currently have or, or just the, the people in the country that we share, we might have to rethink things um, in a very radical way. You mentioned the North really didn't consolidate power. Um, Lincoln wanted union at all costs, including amnesty. Was that a, was that a mistake in that case? Should they have consolidated more power and utterly vanquished vanquished what was left of the Confederacy, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we don't know what Lincoln would have done had he survived. You know, it's, that's the great tragedy of American history. But actually, I want to uh, just pick at something that you said that Lincoln uh, was for union at any cost. This is, this is kind of one of my, my pet peeves, actually, because I think that we say that. But what he did during the secession crisis, when the South actually moved to leave the Union, um, to me suggests that's actually not the case, that, that Lincoln, and this is kind of my, my craziest claim, uh, was himself somewhat of a disunionist. And that is because 
the Republican Party won the 1860 election by saying, we won't extend slavery to the territories. We will never allow another slave state to enter the union. And that was the main plank of the Republican platform. He could have compromised. That was the American political tradition to that point. The North would always compromise and give in to the South's demands, then the, the country stayed together. You know, maybe that was, we, we think now that the country staying together is necessarily a good thing. I, I'm not so sure. And Lincoln himself that winter was not so sure either. He could have compromised. He could have offered to the South at least, okay, we will do what you want. We will extend slavery to the territories indefinitely without limitation. Please stay in the union. And he refused to. And he told his subordinates, don't promise that. We won't, we, I won't give in on that because that's what we ran the election on. And if we give in now, they will always hold us hostage in every future election. So he basically made a bet. He made a bet that if they went to war, the union and the union won, the country would stay together and it would do so with some purpose in mind. And that purpose being emancipation, you know, ending slavery, uh, rededicating the country, as he said in the Gettysburg Address, you know, to the proposition that all men are created equal. But it was a bet. They might have lost. And then the union would be destroyed. So he, he wasn't actually willing to save the union, whatever the cost. Um, and I think that's kind of the same calculation that we need to make today. Not to hold the country together no matter what. That's giving it, the game away. That's, that's um, a pretty weak negotiating position, I think, as the president would say today. Um, I think we need to say we, we will only hold the country together, as Lincoln put it, uh, so as to make and keep it forever worthy of being saved. That's an interesting perspective because that is pretty much the view of Lincoln. Um, but now that you mention it, when you go back further, I think people usually judge um, a lot of what was going on during the war and, and even um, toward the ending. And we have... And from an African-American perspective, I mean, we have the evidence that throughout the way there were different proposals made on Lincoln's part about what to do with us, send mm -hmm. back to Africa. Um, there was even, you know, floated an idea of gradual emancipation, which would have begun in 1900. And, you know, and I, and I say to people, if, if that had happened in 1900 and we prorated his, history, Richard, then Bloody Sunday and Selma would have been in 2000, <laughs> later, you know? Um, and so, but people say, um, use those as examples of suggesting what he was willing to do. But I think you give us an interesting perspective if you look at it in total from the very beginning, um, you know, that he was like, okay, F it, make your move, you know? and. Mm -hmm. Here's, here's, here's another interesting one. You mentioned the proposals that, that were made about what to do with, with former you know, enslaved people. One that I found that I was really astonished to find and not really been discussed much in history was a, an Illinois friend of his who ended up filling his Senate seat named Orville Browning made a proposal to create a separate black republic in the southern states. You know, once the Union won and, and, and they were emancipated, you know, the former slaves were emancipated, he said, give them the, the cotton states. And basically kick all the white people out of the South. And this is an idea that I traced, you know, throughout, you know, ever since in the Republic of New Africa in the right. 1960s, which is a really good new book out about. Yeah. Um, and, but I didn't realize that that proposal had dated back to, you know, the very month that the Civil War began. No, that's interesting. I didn't know that either. So do you include the Republic of New Africa movement? Do you define that as a secessionist movement as well? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it never, you know, it didn't get off the ground too much, but of course it, you know, many supporters of it um, continue to, to propagate those ideas and, and they've had some impact on, on the administration and power in, in Jackson, Mississippi right now. Um, yeah. It's very, it's, you know, and, and I talk about that in the context of a much larger uh, moment of 1960s separatism in, in, you know, serious and, and comedic forms. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's also a Chicano movement at the same time for reclaiming the Southwest that the U S had taken. Uh, and it says something to me that anytime there's major discontent in the country, everybody seems to have the idea at one time or another, and maybe we should, we should break it apart. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned separatist movement. There's the RNA, um, the nation of Islam still talks about separatism. So you right. put all of those, the, the black nationalist arguments for separatism, all of them you would not separate from overall conversation about secession in the in 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 the first place, right? No, not at all. I think it's very much part of the same tradition of all the other ideas that I'm I'm talking about in the book. Another, you know, another interesting uh, section in the book is about black abolitionists before the Civil War, who uh, favored the the idea, which was perhaps more popular among white abolitionists, but there were many black supporters at first Frederick Douglass, then not Frederick Douglass, who was returned against it, but of, of Northern states seceding from the Union so as to deprive the Southern states of what they saw as the guarantees and the uh, encouragement and the protection that the constitution afforded slave owners, you know, through the Fugitive Slave Clause and, and the provision saying that the federal government had to help put down any slave insurrections. There are many abolitionists, white and black, who, who um, favored breaking up the Union preemptively before the South took, took that step as a way to weaken slavery and ultimately end it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So what people talk about today of late is that they think Donald Trump wants a civil war, that he wants to stoke it, uh, he wants America to be divided. Is, is that secessionist too or because what I hear you saying in, in a lot of these movements, um, there may be different aims and goals and purposes, um, some even for the benefit of, of those they're seeking. But what about Trump and his followers? It, it seems to me, because they're not talking about any particular space, it's as if they just want, uh, and, and to me and others, I guess, an anarchist state. Is that the same as <laughs> secession? Well, I mean, I've, seen, I've seen Trump described as the second Confederate president. And that seems about right to me, you know, it just in his representation of white supremacy. And I would not call Trump a secessionist. I would call him a disunionist, though, I think. I think that's what makes him the second Confederate president. I think he uses disunion as, not only as a political strategy, but as you say, I think that's essentially his end goal. I think coincidentally or otherwise, I think that's also Vladimir Putin's goal. Uh, and, and the Republican Party, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to work on a piece about this, but the Republican Party, which was founded and, and made its name really uh, saving the union, I think seems to be hellbent on, on destroying it one way or another. Um, yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know what Trump wants, obviously. Um, a lot of his actions definitely seem to indicate that he's trying to stir up some kind of civil war or race war or, or something uh, that, that would be extremely ugly. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we should encourage him in that. Um, but I think that what a lot of his supporters think, which is what the Confederates also believed in the 1850s, you know, those who became Confederates in the 1860s, is that they loved America. They were the most ardent patriots at the time. And, and they are, you know, again today. But if they see the country being pulled away from them, as they did in the Obama era, 
that patriotism, you know, flips immediately overnight into separatism or disunionism. And I think that if, if Trump, you know, somehow we do manage to get him out of office this winter, I think we're going to see that. All these people who are make America great again, you know, and carrying, you know, the largest American flags they can find, I think might rethink that if, if the flag comes to mean something to them that, that they didn't expect or that they don't believe in. And that's precisely what precipitated the, what we might soon call the first civil war. So I just want to be clear for everyone. Delineate between, I think I know, but I, I want to hear you. Delineate between disunionism and secession. Sure. I mean, secessionism seems to me to, you know, refer to a particular territory of wanting to leave the union. You know, California today. Disunionism is breaking apart the entire thing all at once. You know, there, there are a lot of proposals that, you know, today that I talked about in the last chapter about that we should get everybody together, at, I guess, some big conference table or something, or maybe it'd be a Zoom call these days and, and come up with, you know, the terms for a national divorce, either breaking it. I don't think it would make sense, obviously, to break it into 50 different parts, but perhaps eight to 12 regions, you know, that would be disunion. Um, secession would be, you know, when South Carolina alone wanted to leave mm-hmm. and then the rest of the South went along, you know, in solidarity. But that was, that, that's secessionism is, is really one state trying to leave. I think we can both be assured that Donald Trump has not read your book and won't, he does not seem like one who reads at all. Uh, <laughs> but Again, I don't, obviously, I, I don't think he has any territory in mind. Um, no, but some of his supporters do. There's a lot of, um, you know, white nationalists, white separatists, you know, really, who have backed the, the idea of the American redoubt. That's what they call them. That's what they call it. The Northwest Territorial Imperative, which would, which basically aims to convince white people, you know, proudly capital W white people to move to the inland Northwest in Montana and Idaho and Eastern Washington state and basically take over the local and state governments there in order to carve out an ethno state uh, where only white people, you know, would be allowed uh, white Christian people. Um, so that's, you know, that, I'm not saying that's like the bulk of his followers or something, but that's been a movement that's been pretty active for the last 20 years and has ties to neo-Nazis and, and all that. And, and that, you know, they're, they're planning for apocalypse. Um, and they might interpret a Joe Biden victory, much less a Kamala Harris ascension to the presidency as precisely that. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's very interesting. And you mentioned Putin. Um, looking back on other secessionist or uh, disunionist movements in the past, have we seen as much influence on the part of, of outside actors like Putin before? That's a really good, really good question because that's something that I was thinking about a lot in the writing of the book. You know, I wrote this, you know, while everything was going to pieces and, and this incredibly, um, I think unprecedented conspiracy uh, was seemed to be unfurling. Un, un I remember the day at my, my office when Paul Manafort was arrested, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> that was just the beginning of everything, you know? Um, but what, what it is to me is it's a throwback to the very early days of the American Republic when we were a very weak power that was being thrown around, you know, like, like a cat would throw around a ball of string, you know, um, with France, you know, especially Napoleon and Britain and Spain all trying to carve up the United States, essentially. And they thought that they were going to be able to do it. So they did fund 
separatist movements in the 1780s, the 1790s, and the early 1800s, um, especially in the West, in the Trans-Appalachian, you know, areas of Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, Britain, you know, was, was very involved in the New England uh, Federalist secession movement that I mentioned um, under Jefferson and Madison during the War of 1812. So this is kind of, it, it almost seems to me like American power, American unity kind of went up and now we're coming down and we're facing the same problems that we did back when we were last a very weak country. Uh, and that was at the very beginning. So yeah, there's, there's actually a lot of examples in the book of that. And I, I, I don't, you know, hit people over the head with the comparisons, but I hope, I think people will, will get what I'm going for there. Yeah. And as you described, there obviously are um, secessionist or disunion movements that are very specific unlike Trump, because it seems to me Trump is nonspecific because Putin is. Putin is. You get the impression, not only here in the United States, but obviously with NATO and everywhere else, it's just about breaking up and, and causing division and separation so that people literally can't come together uh, to thwart his agenda. You know? I think that's true, but I also think that we should be careful in not blaming Putin entirely for our own divisions. He's simply, what he's very good at is taking advantage of, of you know, fractures and fault lines and, and really just general fragility in, in other countries and, and prying them open. And it's, it, I think it's really on us um, to heal those and, and to overcome those divisions. And that will make us much less weak with regards to a foreign adversary like, like Russia or, or China, I think even worse, China in the, in the coming years. Um, you know, he, he just saw that we hadn't figured a lot of things out and, and, and saw a cheap and easy way to take advantage of it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. That's a good observation. Folks, the book is Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Fascinating. I want to recommend it to all of our listeners. Uh, and uh, it, is, it is a great book. And Lord knows we all looking for good things to read uh, while we're all still at home. Um, I want to recommend it. Richard, uh, congratulations on this. What's, what's your next project? Oof, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've got an idea um, possibly about the year 1786. It would be a book, you know, one of these, these year books, 1945, things like that. And that's the year, uh, it would be called The Year America Fell Apart. And it's the year where everything was just going to pieces. And, that, and ultimately, that's why we had the Constitutional Convention. And my suggestion is that we're right back in that moment today where we have a constitution that's not adequate to deal with our very long list of extremely critical problems in this country. And the choices before us might be to, to amend it or to break up. Mm. Break it up, folks. Check it out. Richard Kreitner with us. Richard, thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure to have you. Yes, sir. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been made plain.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.